Hello and welcome to The Time and Place, uh, the gospel conversation show where we try to apply God's word to God's world. Solomon is not here, so I am Julian, and uh, we're joined today by our friend Vacation Bible School. What's up, man? Hello. Glad, happy to be here. Thankful to be here. Thank you once again for having me on. Um, no problem. Yeah, we always enjoyed you. our conversations in the past. Yeah, we were, it was supposed to be last week, but uh, you know the snow apocalypse happened, so we all got kind of <laughs> internet stuck, so <laughs> postponed it a little bit. Uh, yeah, Solomon's not here. He's home, uh, kind of nursing some illness. So if you guys keep him in your prayers, we'd appreciate that. He's he's fine, but recovering. So keep him in mind. In the meantime, um, before we get started, I want to kind of talk about uh, sort of current event. It's not political like it usually is, but still, I feel like it relates to the podcast quite a bit. Uh, the man, the myth, the legend that is Carmen passed away not too long ago, a couple of weeks, two weeks ago, I think he passed away, which I, I have not thought about Carmen in 10, 15, 20 years. And yeah, he's, he's gone. For, so that was a, it was a shock to the entire, anybody who grew up in nineties Christianity. It was a, it was a jolt we felt. Yeah. I, I don't know if many people had actually thought about Carmen within the last <laughs> like 10, 20 years. So, um, uh, but but yeah, it, it, that is a. It, it's crazy to try to explain. You were mentioning this before the show. It, it's crazy to try to explain who and what Carmen was uh, to anyone that did not like kind of go through that and experience him and have him like in your in your life. It, it's just it, it's it's very surreal. It's I, I try to explain it to people. Like imagine hearing a. Mid a middle-aged Italian American man rap unironically about Jesus, and you kind of can start to understand. But there was also a lot of <laughs> there was he made movies, there were skits, he had uh, very extensive makeup work in his music videos. It was a real production. Yeah, it, it's it, it's crazy. Like over the top, you know. Uh, th he has that one video. I, I forget for which song it was, but where they're in hell and you have Satan. And it looks yes. like uh, like it was taken out of the movie Legend with yeah, um, Tom Cruise and Tim Curry. It, it looks exactly like it. It's crazy. He really did go all out on all that stuff, and he did. I he might have been one of the first people to do like a a Christian movie that got theatrical release. He made that movie in like 2000 where he played like a, a retired boxer who was coming. It was basically Rocky Balboa, but 20 years earlier with Carmen as the lead actor. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah. Of course, you, you, it was inevitable that Christians made a knockoff version of Rocky. You know, it was, it was inevitable. Well, the thing that was crazy about it too, is that it got real theatrical release. Like it wasn't, like one, it wasn't like left behind where they gave you the VHF tape and they were like called the theaters to make sure they play. Like it was on the listings. You could go to the movies and buy a ticket. He was Carmen was a force. Uh, he, at one point, I think that I don't know if this is still the case, but he held the record for largest Christian concert of all time. Oh, I could believe that. At one point, yeah, and, and it's like it, Carmen did that. It wasn't Hillsong or it wasn't you know Chris <laughs> Tomlin or something you know who, someone like that you would expect. Um, <laughs> You know, Carmen holds uh, held the record for that, and it's crazy because so many people now don't 
don't even know who he is. Yeah, he was in that golden age of of pre. I don't know if he was pre CC, but he was like at the peak of CCM. Like he met that convergence point before it went mainstream, and it's it was kind of coming out of that like seventies eighties Christian wave. Uh, he kind of did have the ability to cross denominations, though. That's what I thought was interesting because my whole family was super Southern Baptist, like hardcore mm. Southern Baptist. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance. And Carmen's very Pentecostal. Like he's super, oh, yeah. uh, super charismatic. And still, they would pack the concerts with everybody. It didn't seem like any of that mattered. It was just like, well, he's, it's Carmen. We're going to go see Carmen. Yeah, he, he it's really interesting. Um, oh, he still holds the record. Thank still you for record. checking me. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that's great. Yeah, it, it's it's nuts to me. Um, you know, admittedly, I'm not the biggest Carmen fan <laughs> myself. Um, I, though I, I do love him in a type of ironic way because I find him so campy and oh, yeah. entertaining from that respect. Um, and what's interesting to me is uh, after I learned about his, his recent passing. Um, I, I went back and listened to some of his music. And if you listen to just like the instrumental part, at least in some of his albums, I'm not mm-hmm. saying this for all of it. If you listen to just the instrumental part of it and you think about the actual progression of notes that he's singing within the melody, it's not bad. Yeah. Um, no, he's a very yeah, I was good listening. Singer. I was like, this is this is actually decent. It's just his performance of it is <laughs> over the top campy that like I can't take his uh um it, you know just how how campy his singing is it, it sounds like he's you know playing some sort of different character um which I I think is part of maybe the appeal that some people had to him but it, it's still like if this was a different you know singer if, the, if you handed this to I don't know Andre Crouch or something um <laughs> some like really good respected talented singer they would knock it out of the park and so that's what's fascinating to me he kind of was like a, almost like a Wayne Newton or like, you know, it was like a Vegas stage show, like a, a Christian yes, yes, Vegas stage yes, show. Exactly. Absolutely. So, you know, he'll be missed for a lot of different reasons. Uh, I do have, you know, Carmen's one of those things like salty or like, uh, <laughs> yes, any of those things that from my, my childhood that I'm like, yeah, it was goofy, but like, it was a part of my life for a long period. So of course, I have some, of course. He, he's like, uh, he's like your dad. Like he's not cool, but you love him. <laughs> like he's trying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if, uh, if you ever listen to the Babylon B podcast, but, uh, uh, I do not know. One of the things is they interview everybody they've had all kinds of people on, but whenever they have like a Christian celebrity on their, their question is always like, have you ever met Carmen? And they just want like <laughs> Carmen stories. And <laughs> my favorite one was uh, Doug Tenaple, who he's he's the creator of Earthworm Jim. Uh, he's worked on on some stuff like that. He used to do album covers for Five Iron Frenzy. So, oh wow, yeah, he's he's big in the media world. Like he's he's done multiple video games. He's had cartoons that he produced on Nickelodeon and stuff. Um, somebody else that he didn't want to name had been on tour with Carmen, and they did say that he had a tanning bed on his touring bus. So that, that was enough for me. Of course he did. Of course. Like <laughs> that story is 100% true. I don't need to fact check that. I know in my heart that that is, that's absolutely true. He had to keep that glow, man. He was, a, he was kind of a heart job. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. So rest in peace, Carmen. You, <laughs> you will be missed. Uh, so today's subject is, um, a little serious. It can get a little serious. I think we, we like to have fun with everything, but it can be a little uh, heavy sometimes. So uh, before we get started, uh, you wanted to say 
a couple words. Yeah, about. yeah. It just just to give, um, a, we're talking about purity culture tonight, and uh, we are aware of the negative impact that it has had on so many people, especially people who are um, victims of uh, a variety of forms of sexual trauma. And so we just wanted to, you know, acknowledge that at the beginning, uh, give a bit of a, a trigger warning, if you will. Um, to let you know if you're just not in an emotional space tonight to to you know listen to this kind of conversation. Of course, we're going to be very respectful and sympathetic, you know, to, to your pain and take it seriously. But um, you know, if you're not in an emotional space to listen to that right now, that's perfectly okay. You're welcome to come back at a later time. We will be right. here virtually waiting for you, uh, welcoming <laughs> you once again with open arms. Right. And, you know, we try not to be uh, flippant about serious things. And I think course, yeah. one of the things with purity culture is it, it is kind of a joke, right? Especially to the bigger world. It's like a, it's a joke thing. It's like that it weird is. thing that Christians do. But, I was just in the mall um, yesterday for like the first time in a year. I was like, I just got to get out of the house and go someplace. Um, and I went into Zoomies. Oh, yeah, you did. They, they sell um, like Virginity Rocks T-shirts which is a parody awesome. of like purity culture type stuff. So yeah, it, it has now been appropriated as a complete joke <laughs> in, in secular culture. And I, it's one of those things that I don't think we, um, me personally, in a way, I remember it, but I'm just now seeing the ramifications of it kind of bear themselves out. And I, I think, yeah. uh, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist. Uh, I, I did look up the history of like the true love weights movement and it was a Southern Baptist movement. Like it, Came through the Southern Baptist Church, got picked up by Lifeway, who still sponsors it. Apparently, it's still a thing. I didn't know it was still going on. Uh, so, what I don't, what was your background with with the movement itself? Was that like a church thing for you? Uh, yes. So, um, for me personally, I did grow up very much entrenched in purity culture. Though, interestingly, and this is what I've heard from a couple other people as well. I know this wasn't the case for everyone. Um, my parents were not into it. Hmm. Um, my parents were not like the, these whole heart. Uh, full-hearted supporters of, of purity culture. And, you know, they never made me read um, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. They, dis <laughs> they they explicitly told me that they disagreed with I Kiss Dating Goodbye and stuff like that. Um, so it, not that they didn't care about, right. you know, they're very, you know, dedicated Christians and everything, but just the whole like purity culture bent on it. They disagreed with, right. um, but I went to a private Christian uh, high, uh, school from third grade until graduation. And mm -hmm. I was actively involved in these type of uh, Southern Baptist <laughs> youth groups. And I got a lot of it from, <laughs> from, from them. Um, and admittedly, this is after the era of where, uh, so like um, I kissed dating goodbye because I'm a little bit younger. So this was right. like mid 2000s early 2010s. Mm -hmm. um, and so I Kiss Dating Goodbye and True Love Waits kind of died out um, and in terms of they were not as explicit in their ideology. Mm. Okay. Um, but they still kept a lot of the themes. It's right. just they weren't, they, they, they kind of toned it down a little bit. <laughs> um, but then they also ramped up their emphasis on like anti-porn Mm. Um, type of teaching and and things like that because the internet was really becoming popular. Yeah, that makes sense. I was yeah, I was coming up in it kind of pre. I mean, I graduated in two thousand seven, uh, so I, I graduated high school the same year like YouTube went live. So <laughs> the internet internet porn yeah. wasn't really a thing when I was right. coming up in high school. Right. So yeah, it was it was about dating and and all of that kind of stuff and. <sighs> 
it's just a weird way to look at it, I guess, now, especially thinking back on it, like the, well, especially now knowing the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, uh, not only like disowns the book, but disowns the faith. Like he's not even in any church anymore. He's like, I, right. I don't know. I don't believe this. I don't believe anything. I have left my wife. I don't know what I'm doing. So, yeah. Oof. Should we perhaps, for anyone that doesn't know, define purity <laughs> culture for people? Sure. That's a good idea. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to define. And that's one it of the is. reasons that I was so confused by it because it's, you know, my assumption, it could, just because of the title, is true love waits. Okay. The implication is that you're waiting until you're married to have sex. That's what I assumed uh, was the, the rationale behind it. I, I looked it up because I was trying to find some history on it, and they talked to the the uh, one of the founders. His name was Richard Ross, um, and this was a quote they got from him. Um, True love, meaning a life of purity, waits until one approaches the throne at the end of life on earth. There, a Christ follower presents a gleaming gift to his highness, a gift of a lifetime of sexual purity in mind and body. So... I, I guess it it's like shooting beyond marriage and said it I got uncomfortable reading the quote <laughs> yeah uh, I, I think what so sexual purity and in, in I think in in that case would be sex only expressed within the confines of, of marriage right uh, between a hu husband and wife you know until they die right um but I I, I I personally think it's important to point out in terms of, of practice, if you if you look beyond kind of what these uh, these people say in their nice quotes to you know <laughs> sell books and everything, um, <laughs> if if you look in terms of its actual practice and how the ideology, because I do think it's like an ideology in right. a sense of um, it, it, how it gets implemented to people, it's not about abstinence before marriage. Mm. It is about being. It is about complete and total sexual repression mm. before marriage. Um, it is the, the goal is a type of sexless existence in a <laughs> sense. Um, like it, it is this sexual motive uh, repression. Um, and it's not motivated by like cultivating desires towards, towards maybe like a more, um, I don't know, properly ordered life or, right. you know, you know, reordering your, you know, okay, well, you know, sexual sex is, you know, going to be down towards the end of the totem pole. I'm going to put other more important right, things right. at the top. It's not about that. It's motivated by like a type of prosperity gospel yes. of this promise that like, if you are completely sexless, you don't have any sort of sexual thoughts. And if you don't, you know, do anything uh, sexual before marriage, then you will have the perfect marriage, the perfect sex life. Yes. Um, and it's like this weird promise that that's, that that's what's going to happen for you. And I think it's also built a lot on, um, self-hatred as well as mm. it gets people to be completely ashamed of their own bodies, their own, um, uh, sexuality by that. I mean, just like a, a general, you know, kind of sexual disposition towards the world, mm -hmm. you know, that perceives things, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, romance and beauty and being attracted to other people, um, it gets people to to be ingrained in a, a complete um, self hatred and shame regarding all of those things in all of their kinds of expression. Right. That's you know it's it's it is weird because that attitude is I feel like it's recent. Uh, we've me and Solomon have talked about how off off podcast before how uh, Martin Luther during the time that he was you know uh, kind of de deconstructing the Catholic idea of marriage and celibacy that 
you weren't considered married until you had sex. You actually had to have sex before the ceremony and somebody had to watch you to verify that this happened. And yeah, uh, they had some messed up practice. Yeah, it was a very different attitude towards sex. But in the modern kind of American evangelical church, sex is almost like a, a thing we have to like put up with. Like, oh, I wish yeah. we didn't have to do this, but you exactly. know, it's here. So this is what it is. Right. Right. It's trying to, you know, like just repress it in a very unhealthy way to like yes. relegate it to such a a hidden part of one's, you know, mind or hidden part of one's kind of church community that you can mm -hmm. never talk about these things unless right. it's, you know, under the rubric of, of purity culture and, and things like that. It's, it's really strange because as much emphasis as like the Bible puts on marriage and union and family and children, like none of that happens without sex. But for some reason, right. we're like, well, this is like the thing that you have to do to get to the the good stuff. This is the bad part of it. I, I explicitly remember this one time. Uh, my parents had bought – I had cousins that were about the same age as me. And they had bought a um, – I guess it was like a mini devotional for us all that we all had. And it was like, here, read the, it was from Family Christian Stories where you get all your good uh, Christian needs when it existed. Are they even uh, – yeah. <laughs> no, it's gone. It is gone, oh, yeah. yeah. The only one that's Sorry surviving is Lifeway. No, it's okay. The only one that survives is Lifeway, and the only reason they survive is because they're the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. If, if it mm. wasn't for that, they would not exist, but right. that, that's why they're still around. Um, so we got these books, and I remember reading a, a piece of it that was on purity and sexuality. And one of the statements that like stuck out to me really, really bluntly, and it still is like the only part of this book that I remember, is that it said, all sex is sin. So how do we deal with that? And I was like, well, I don't know. How do we deal with that? Whoa. Because that's a very strange way to, and I guess their their rationale or their approach was the verse where it says that my, my mother conceived me in sin had to do with the fact like, well, the, the method of conception is sex, so therefore your sex was a sin, it, it, which is so confusing to anybody who's 12 and doesn't know, yeah, yeah. you know, like, I don't know how to, how to deal with that. Right. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Um, admittedly, that was not my particular education or mm -hmm. Miseducation, I would say, um, but uh, it, ours was more of like um, it, it, it was this again, like very much a prosperity gospel motivation of if right. you just wait and put it off long enough, you are going to have the perfect sex life is just and, going to be completely perfect, flawless. And because, you know, it's God's promise to you. And so, you know, of yeah. course, it's going to be the best thing ever. I, I don't think it was intentional either. Like, I don't think my parents were like. Oh, this this is all 100% on board. I think they just got it at Family Christian stores. They assumed it was of, of course, on the level, yeah, you know? yeah, not malicious. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. And so I, I like what you're talking about because that's the angle I kind of came at this at, looking at it now. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like for for the most part, that um, that idea, that prosperity of like, you know, save yourself and you'll have this perfect marriage didn't stick with the guys that I was in youth group with. That, that idea kind of faded away from, we, we you know, Growing up and getting older, we kind of shed that idea. I don't know why, but that idea gotcha. of like, well, if you act good, God will give you good stuff just kind of died out for us. Maybe just stuff we've been through in life. Or For me personally, it was when I found out I was diabetic. I was like, well, I guess it doesn't quite work that way, does it? So, uh, But what, what I have seen is kind of girls that were in my age group and were in you know youth group struggle with dating and now marriage in that way. Hmm. Where it was like, you know, I, I was told if I kept my purity, uh, which I feel like is a code word for holiness, and I really don't like the, that it's used that way. Right. Uh, if I kept my holiness, then God would give me the husband that fulfills me and completes me and understands me, and my my you know my marriage will be everything that I've dreamed it was. And and they're holding out for this 
prince that doesn't exist. The you know I yeah, I yeah. I was telling my my uh, fiance about it like you know all of these people believe this this idea and then they get me <laughs> like this is not the prince that they signed up for it's a real human with exactly. flaws and selfishness exactly. and you know yeah yeah I think that's uh, totally the case definitely misrepresents expectations um, and and I do think it it should be pointed out that. It seems on the whole, more women were affected negatively mm -hmm. by purity culture than yes. men, though I there were lots of men who were negatively affected, myself yes. included. Uh, right. I, I've had to deconstruct a lot of the narratives of purity culture, I, actually working with a, with a therapist even mm -hmm. on deconstructing some of the things that I taught because it so negatively affected me. Um, and it seemed to have a real negative effect on people that unfortunately took it the most seriously. Mm. So if you like really bought into and trust, you know, trusted your, the, the people who were teaching this to you, which were often right. pastors, youth pastors, yep. Bible teachers, people that you looked up to and respected and trusted, if you really took it seriously um, and, you know, motivated out of wanting to do what God wants you to do, right. uh, it ends up affecting these people, the, the most, unfortunately. Mm. And it's really sad because it's, it's one of those things. It's almost like when, when you talk to somebody who maybe has come out of a cult, um, mm -hmm. yes. who, you know, they're motivated by sincerity. Like I thought this right. was true. And I thought I was doing what God wanted me to do. Right. Exactly. And I, all I have is wreckage and damage left behind me. Right. You know, become, yeah, it's the exact thing. It's, it's really sad. And I guess, um, it's kind of fallen apart recently because some of the bigger, you know, proponents of it are falling out. Like they're not, they're not a part of it anymore. So the, yeah. the foundation that they built is like, well, we have to abandon it, I guess. But I, the ramifications for people our age uh, is just, you know, we don't know how to have relationships. We don't know how to, exactly. we don't know how to talk to, to our children who are going to be coming up about this kind of stuff. Cause no one talked to right. us about it in a way that makes any sense. Right. Yeah. I'm still feel like I'm floundering in this area of my life, just trying to figure out like what the heck I think about these things. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, just be able to talk to women. Like I know, I know that's like, but, but to be able to talk to women without feeling, you know, guilty, just to right. have a normal, healthy, uh, you know, friendship with another woman, um, not even a romantic setting still can sometimes be very difficult for me. Mm. And I'm, uh, it, which is, sad um because a lot of times in, in purity culture it would just be like you know you gotta separate boys and girls as right. much as possible keep them away from each other because you know if you leave them you know together then it's you know they're going to be too <laughs> tempted and they won't be able to right. control themselves and all that kind of stuff which is silly and uh it's sad too because i i have some incredible women in my life that are just these uh, incredible people that I so cherish. And I would not be the man that I am today without mm. uh, these female friends in my life. And they're not, we're not romantically involved with right. each other. You know, they're my friends. And um, it, it's sad that that purity culture, I, I think kept that away from a lot of people. Mm. It does kind of turn, it turns people into um, temptation objects, I guess. Exactly. Yes. Um, and that was one of the main perhaps we can unpack that further um, because I, I think that that was a huge problem of purity culture was the distortion of people's perception. Like you said, to view them purely as like temptation mm. objects. 
Um, and, and it got applied to men and women in slightly different ways, okay. um, different narratives, but it definitely messed both of these groups up. Um, again, if, if they took it seriously, <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, you know, you always had the group, the kid, the youth group that would kind of sneak off like the couple that would disappear and everybody knew what yeah, they were doing, yeah. but you couldn't find them anywhere. Yeah. Um, right. But yeah, it's, it, it does affect people differently. And I, I think because, you know, uh, we, we talked to Doug Wilson about this and, and he said before, like, Modern modern culture wants to have a a male and female sexual attitude that's exactly the same. Like, why why do men have to be so sexually oriented? Why do they have to be so uh, sexual as beings? And he's like, well, because the sky is blue and water is wet. Like that's just the way it is. So we do have different kind of attitudes and and responses and uh, even desires sexually as as males and females. So it does kind of. Uh, show up differently in my personal experience it felt like the burden was uh on the man on on the boys i shouldn't even say man on the young young boys who were trying to figure all this stuff out it was you know um you're full of evil desires and it's just yes. that, that put it in your head you're full of evil desires and you know as a calvinist i would agree with them but in a different way i wouldn't put it that way uh <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah. we're not talking about like depravity or like <laughs> right. the general you know no, it's of, just of humans. This. Yeah. just your, your 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 attraction to females it's bad right. um on women it was the other way it was like uh you are a problem for them you make yes. them sin yeah. and so it, it's, it's just this unhealthy attitude towards each other that like you're a problem for me and like oh i think i am a problem for you so how do we how do we handle this how do we do and you don't know <laughs> you really don't and yeah, you know, exactly. the, the alternative uh, which is also unhealthy and i think that's we've talked about this before with christian culture is that whatever the the secular culture does we we swing hard to the right and the alternative in, in uh secular culture is well there are no rules it's it's all whatever you want to do it's sexuality is just fun uh, the, the apostle puts it as, you know, the, the stomach for food and food for the stomach. That's the idea is like, you're built to have sex. So have sex and have as much of it as you want. And, you know, we, the, the, the hard part growing up with both of those things on both sides of you is like, okay, what's correct. Like what's the biblical ethic on sexuality, which is, you know, for us, especially as reformed people, we always come back to or for us being me and Solomon, I should say as reformed, <laughs> as reformed people, uh, Coming back to actually, this might be interesting because I don't know where you stand on like the solos and everything. Um, as reformed people, is always like, okay, well, what does the text actually say about this? Because that's going to be the standard, not some guy's opinion or a book that this person wrote or somebody's personal testimony or whatever. It's like, what does the text say about sexuality and how we conduct ourselves and how we live and how we do things? Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're, you know, you're, uh, I, more educated than me on, on stuff like this. So what, what's, what's your kind of take on that? Like what, what does the scripture say about sexuality and relationships and things like that? That's a good question. Um, and I'm going to try to problematize it <laughs> <laughs> simply because, uh, well, I, I do want to point out that um, it is very difficult, I think, to construct a type of like one-to-one -one correspondence between what the biblical texts are saying about sexuality and like what we should be doing in our own context. I'm not trying to say that the Bible is not authoritative or that the Bible has nothing to say to us today. I'm just saying that like what's difficult is that the Bible is writing to people in a particular context dealing with particular social situations. And right. so there is some motivation in, in addressing the type of material 
socio like because marriage back in that time you know marriage involves lots of things of course it involves right. you know sex yes but it also involves lots of politics lots of socioeconomic factors um and things like that and the you know socio uh, the the sociology of marriage in you know first century new testament times is almost completely different than our own <laughs> uh -huh. sociological conditions. You know, like uh, we don't have arranged marriages anymore. Right. Um, you know, uh, 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 inheritance isn't determined through, you know, legitimacy of the firstborn son. And, right. you know, women aren't, aren't you know, uh, sold with, with dowry to like, you know, these right. arrangements that are, you know, so all of those things I think are, are, are different. Not to say that you can't learn anything about sex from the Bible. It's just like, that is one of the things that I think makes it so difficult for people now trying to figure out like, what do we do? It's like, okay, well, <laughs> how do we handle some of the cultural differences? How do we translate some of these principles to our own time today? Um, but I, I do think that there's, um, you know, some general things that one can, um, can conclude because I think it's also and maybe this is where we're we're different. Um, okay. Because uh, I, I approach it, uh, I'm a Methodist, and so I approach right. it from like the the Methodist tradition, which has something called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, um, which is that uh, you know uh, you kind of have these different influences of authority, if you will, within, okay. uh, within like navigating questions of faith. It's more of like, these are the tools that you need to use that are okay. important and that, you know, are, we might say authoritative for, right. uh, in, interacting with questions of faith. And that would be, um, scripture primarily, um, but also tradition. So looking mm -hmm. at like, what is, how is the history of the Christian church interacted with this? Right, what right. are some of the great thinkers and, you know, your denomination and, and things like that said about it, um, as well as uh, uh, reason. So, you know, think about it critically and, right. and you know, <laughs> you know, ap apply proper critical thinking tools right. to this question and then personal experience as well. Like, you know, what have you learned from your own life that might mm -hmm. influence your understanding of this? Mm -hmm. um, so those four factors, um, I think, need to be involved in what as well. Um, so whenever I think about, uh, it, well, I'm, I'm taking up too much time. I don't know. If no, no, I, it, it's actually really interesting. I like that because I don't know. I'm, I'm gonna, I don't know a lot about the uh, Methodist denomination. That's uh, fine. Yeah. Yeah, it's one. Who of really the, it's, does. Right. It's like Episcopalianism. <laughs> I don't know a lot about that either. Anglicanism. I don't know. Like, there's some denominations that are just not prevalent in South Texas, so I don't know a lot about them. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, that's interesting because I almost we we would come at it kind of in this because anytime we have discussions about this stuff we're like okay well what do we think about this well this this church father said this or this reformer said this and they held mm -hmm. this opinion and they held this opinion or you know let me ask my pastor and see what he thinks you ask yours and see what he so it's kind of you know we apply that yeah. but you know we come back to the 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 text okay all of that how does it line up with the text what does the text say and of course mm -hmm. context critical thinking uh it, right now in our church group we're going through uh revelation so context is a big Thing that we're trying to hammer home yes, like context yes. context context yes. uh, I, personally I, I as far as the marriage and sexuality thing it, it comes back to matthew 19. um i i feel like a lot of people think especially with sexuality it's hard to get a beat on it because like well jesus didn't talk about it a ton he talked about mm -hmm. you know love for neighbor and not being a hypocrite and and sacrifice and mercy and kindness and all that 
but the one text that does stick out in that was in Matthew 19, where he talks about divorce and the Sadducees ask him what his opinion is on it. Should we, you know, Moses allowed us to get divorced for any reason at all. Uh, what do you say? And the, the, the cultural context is there was two schools of rabbinical thought that had two different opinions about divorce at the time. And so they were mm -hmm. basically, basically asking him, where do you fall? What's your opinion on this? And, you know, his, his, which I, I think this is kind of why, you know, five solas, his appeal is to the text. And he goes, have you not read? And his answer is, have you not read that in the beginning, he who made them made them male and female. And for this reason, uh, a man leaves his family and cleaves to his wife and the two become one flesh. So for me, and I think for a lot of reformed people, I would say most, if not all, that's kind of our baseline foundation as far as a sexual ethic. Like we're designed inherently to be united sexual beings in a marriage context right so uh, yeah yeah I, th I think that that's that's pretty uh, a pretty good starting point of just saying like yeah this is part of what it is to be hum human um you know th th this is uh yeah part of who we are it's part of our being um and i i think that what you're latching on to is somewhat of of my position as well, which is um, pointing out that it's kind of like, you know, all right, these people are sexed beings, <laughs> you know, beings right. who have sexuality and, and sex. Right. Um, and then it's the question of like, okay, how does that get properly oriented and expressed? Mm. Um, and I think what's interesting is if you look at like how, what purity culture taught people. Maybe I'll use that as a foil and right. say like, okay, now how we can do something different. <laughs> um, th they would just tell them, you know, just, just repress everything. Right. You know, you're, you're this, you know, sexual being, but just turn the switch off until you're like 24 um, <laughs> and then, you know, turn it back on and you'll realize, you know, and it'll be perfect. Um, or it was, you know, even sometimes more threatening situations of like, don't have sex or, you know, um, you'll be a lot of horrible narratives centered around, you know, damaged goods. We can get back to right. all the different analogies and everything, yep. but you are damaged goods or, you know, you know, th this is a gift that you've ruined and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so pure, purity culture ended up presenting the, the end, the final goal, the T loss uh, to ah. use the philosophical term right. um, of sexuality as a type of prosperity gospel, as mm -hmm. we said before, that the perfect marriage, it, it's this perfect marriage and sex life. Um, and the habit that they propose to reach that goal uh, is just complete and total repression of one sexual right. being. So it just, it, it, again, you know, it, it's almost ludicrous, but I think that instead um, we need to have a final goal of marriage or sex uh, that is something more like the cultivation of a life that builds one another in mutual mm. love in friendship and mm. a virtuous character that is in service to the kingdom of God. Right. I don't mean I, like everyone has to be, you know, part of, part of a church, but I do think, you know, this idea of having a partner with you that enables you to, uh, you know, uh, uh, to be more service to the kingdom of God than what you would be able to do on your own, um, right. to have your sexuality, you know, with this goal of fostering and growing a love and a friendship and developing in uh, Christian character virtues, I think should be probably what I would say is the 
like the T loss of marriage. It's interesting too, when you talk about the damaged goods idea, because mm. it's, it's funny when you think about like, you'll have a perfect marriage. What's the requirement that you be a perfect person, right? You have to be unspoiled. <laughs> you have to be spotless. You have to be, you, you have to present the best to this person so that your marriage will be perfect. And it does that, right. that sense of guilt. Like I'm not perfect, right? It's almost like a dread. Oh, I remember, you know, when I was in my twenties, kind of a dread of like having these yeah. conversations with girls in church, if, if it ever came up, it was like, well, I have to tell them like, I'm not this pure, you know? Oh, of course. Yes. I, it's so many, I, I, you know, you know, been there as well. It's, it, it, <laughs> but you know, I, I followed the rules pretty seriously, but there would still always be this thing, like, you know, I lost it after that victorious one <laughs> time when I was 14 and not that I condone that, but it's still like, it, it would cause me, but I think it's a good illustration because it would be these things that are like, okay, not good, but it's also like, I'm not this sex demon, right. um, but, but it's like, it would cause me to view myself that way. And I would, right. you know, something like, you know, Lord have mercy, lusting after Victoria's Secrets ad or whatever, <laughs> whenever I was 14, um, and, you know, that would happen. And then I would be terrified that I was like becoming addicted to pornography mm. or something like that. And it would be, you know, take an influence on like, if I got into a relationship or something, I would feel so guilty. Like I was, you know, this flawed, you know, person that couldn't meet the standards and I right. failed them in some sense. And, you know, you almost have to like confess, right. Uh, <laughs> you know, that you're, turns out I'm not perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it's, I can't imagine that kind of purity, like thinking purity culture now, like in today's oh, yeah. situation, like I, in a world where leggings exist, I can't imagine like trying to be that like perfect. I never lust after anything. I never look at any, like the hyper-sexualized culture we have now, it would be, you'd almost have to be a monk to, to live yeah. that way. What's interesting is that uh, there's recent work done by, I, I don't agree with everything that she says. Um, some of it I, I think is a little bit problematic, but um, Sheila Gregory um, has done a lot of work on deconstructing purity culture and some of the harmful myths. And she makes a really interesting argument that uh, purity culture creates lust. Mm. Um, and what she means by that is because it had such a negative understanding of male sexuality um, because it's a feminine sexuality as well. But in terms of the lust conversation right, for male right. sexuality, it was that all attraction to other people is lust and you can't control it. You are, you know, you must hide yourself. You know, you have to, you know, you know, bunker up, cover your eyes at all times because you are basically a, you know, a sex demon. You are a monster. And if you think that someone is beautiful, you've committed a sin, you've rested right. after them and you're, you know, and it reinforces this narrative of like, you have no real love to give. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it you know, it, th there's no possibility of, of you presenting any real romantic love, any real, sexual love within, you know, uh, a relationship and, and things like that. And it teaches them, it teaches men that every time that they see a person who's beautiful, there's lots of, uh, I would argue along with, with Andy Warhol, that if everybody's not a beauty, then no one is, <laughs> I think everyone's beautiful. And so whenever you see all these beautiful people that are out in the world and you go, Oh, wow, that person's really, really beautiful. They're very, you know, attractive and your mind immediately interprets that as like lust, sin, <laughs> what are you doing? You know, you were sexualizing them. Uh, 
it creates tons of anxiety and it causes one to think that like, oh my gosh, I struggle with, with lust all the time. Cause it, you know, it's almost like a, don't think about pink elephants type of right. situation. Right. Um, and so it ends up creating lust in that sense. <laughs> That's interesting. That's really interesting. Cause it's, I mean, that gets into a broader topic. I, I really like that. Uh, I don't think we think about this often, but that ethics and aesthetics are kind of philosophically linked. Like when we talk about mm -hmm. what, what, yeah. it, so, you know, those two things are connected, but we don't think about that a lot. And I feel like the church doesn't really have like an understanding of aesthetics or beauty that kind of lets us appreciate beautiful things in a non sexual way. Like you're saying, like yeah. if you see a person, you just think they're beautiful. And especially I think it kind of feeds into like this, uh, it's kind of a weird side tangent, but like, even to an emotionalism, right? Like you can't be, uh, one of the things that really bothers me and you know, however you feel about it, uh, when Captain America, the movie was coming out and the, I know it's going to sound weird, but I'm going to go, I'm going somewhere with this. Trust me. No, no, no. I, 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 I trust you. Yeah. When, they, uh, when, you know, he had Bucky, his friend, his best friend, there was this, I, this thing flowing around the internet, maybe just cause the internet is weird and, and they sexualize everything, but it was this idea that like, Oh, they're a couple. And it's like, well, why are they a couple? Because they have a close friendship and that's not masculine, I guess. Um, so there's this weird uh, idea in, in in kind of Western masculinity, but also in just the church culture that like emotionalism is sexual or strong feelings of any kind is sexual. So it's, you know, you have people that don't know how to build friendships at all or relationships at right. all. Even to, yeah, which goes back to what, yeah, yes. Yeah. Amongst the same gender. Um it goes back to like what I was saying before about like the constant trying to separate boys and girls from one another and, um, you know, preventing any sort of uh, cross-gender, you know, friendships and right. things like that. Yeah, it, it is this reinforces this narrative of like emotional connection is somehow the same thing as sexual attraction. Now, I, I it's not that sexual attraction is devoid of. Right, emotional, right. <laughs> emotional attraction or, or emotional connection. I'm not saying that, but it is like, you know, not, not, it's, it's all not a one to one yeah. correlation. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it's just, uh, another angle on that too, is in this, this need to be, uh, physically pure is that you're kind of, uh, cavalier with your emotions. I, I mm. don't know if it's a way to make up for it or a way to whatever, but I knew a lot of people in high school that were dating as if they were married, but it was celibate. You know, yeah, yeah, and you, yeah. like you get into these weird spots where it's like, oh, we, you know, we pray together and we study the Bible together and we have deep conversations. Together. It's like, you're not married. Like you're, right, you're emotionally right. bonded. So you have all yeah, this no, Lord have mercy, but I've, I've been guilty of that as well. Definitely. Right. And it's, 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 it's part of that upbringing that I don't, you know, still trying to unlearn some of that. Right. But yeah. And, you know, I think in, in some ways, if not more, it's as damaging as like an unhealthy sexual ethic is an unhealthy emotional ethic where you're just bonding yourself that deeply to every person you date. Like you're just having celibate marriages your whole life. And then that the breakup is so spectacular and damaging. Like, well, yeah, because you've basically been practicing your marriage with this person for you know however many years it is. Yeah, yeah. There's no sense of, of, of balance to it. Right. Uh, but these people, you know. I was never, you know, was not taught to learn how to balance those things. Right. And, you know, I, I remember my dad telling me uh, I had to have been in high school and I, I don't even know how the conversation came up about you know dating or whatever. And he, my dad is, he's in his fifties now. Uh, he was born in 1963. 
Uh, so, you know, he had kind of an older understanding of like dating and you don't dating was casual. You just go on dates and there's no uh, expectation of anything and there's no promise of anything. We're just hanging out. We're having fun. We're seeing if we like each other. And if we do, then we can right. be more serious. <laughs> so that was his attitude. And he was like, well, you should be, you know, dating lots of people and just, you know, it's casual. There's nothing serious. You're just hanging out. And to me in my, you know, early 2000s dating understanding, I was like, what do you mean dating lots of people? That's so immoral and improper. Yeah, and, yeah, know, yeah. The older I got, I was like, oh, he had a point. <laughs> he was right about it. It's way less serious that way. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's difficult to pull that off, though, in today's day and age. Right. I, you just have to be like, I have, you know, these are just friends and we're hanging out. You, have, right. you can't exactly. say dating anymore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that is, that is really true of, of like the just again, this kind of all or nothing, not learning yes. how to have balance, not how not learning how to. Um, perceive nuance, just complete black and white thinking in the most extreme sense um, about a topic that is very difficult. <laughs> you know, what could be more difficult than like relationships and right. romance and love and sexuality? Like all of that stuff is so, so messy and so difficult. Um, it's beautiful. It's absolutely worth engaging in, but it's, it's hard. Uh, and there's, oh, this is interesting. We can, on this purity culture says dating is practice for divorce. Uh, oh, I remember hearing that. Did you hear that? I never heard that before. That's a new one. Uh, I, that was kind of died died out during my time. So that wasn't like what was taught about it. But um, I, I did hear those quotes, and mm. it, it was like if if you get into certain material. Um, that was, you know, still in the church library or, or what have you, then, then you might come across it. Yeah. I, I wrote this down too, because I thought it was so, so strange that the true love waits pledge. I never did that. Like we, I guess we never did the full program. I never did it either. either. I yeah, went to a youth group and I showed up like, or I started at a youth group right after they did like a purity oh. ring <laughs> pledge. Um, the only one so like I missed ring. it. Yeah, I know. I'm the only one. So I guess, you know, <laughs> scarlet oh, letter man. on me or something <laughs> uh so there was a whole pledge you would sign a card and i just i like reading this because it's so weighty when you're 12 mm. years old i can't imagine yeah uh, so it says believing that true love waits i make a commitment to god myself my family my friends my future mate and my future children to be sexually abstinent from this day until the day i enter a biblical marriage relationship so the weight of all future generations of your family is resting on your ability <laughs> to keep yourself under control. So, you know, no pressure. Yeah. There's so much pressure on that. And one of the things that this was at least my experience, um, I, I can't speak for anyone else, but it very much relates to what you're talking about on like future generations are, are, are holding on this is that purity culture developed uh, this notion of the future spouse. Now, I mean, everyone yes, has yes. some notion, but they really use this a lot um, and, and constantly using this notion of the future spouse in right. order to shame you into certain kinds of performance. You know, mm -hmm. if you're on a date, they would sometimes be like, you know, well, you know, you just need to ask yourself, would I be doing what I'm doing if my right. future spouse was in the room right now? <laughs> and it's like, okay, this is weird. Um, uh, to, to, <laughs> to definitely go a direction that admittedly no one should ever go. Um, right. to, uh, there, there's a, a, 
a French philosopher and psychoanalyst called Jacques Lacan, <laughs> which is always just a way to kill a conversation um, <laughs> or an interesting way to start on a, a first date. Who knows? <laughs> but, uh, but he had this theory that's really interesting uh, called, I think it's uh, the ego ideal, the ego okay. ideal, which is like this kind of imaginary, almost authoritative figure in your mind. It's not an imaginary friend, but it's like, for whom are you performing whenever uh, you're doing something and hoping to get acceptance? So like classic example is someone who uh, everything that they do both in school and work and everything is to make their parents proud. You know, I just want my right. parents to be proud of me. It's this kind of imaginary notion of your parents that you're trying to please in your head um, that you're constantly performing. He calls that the ego ideal. Well, purity culture develops that with the future spouse. And so, so much of what you do in your life is to try to please this imaginary notion of the future spouse who is like the most judgmental, merciless, <laughs> um, awful human being that could possibly exist. And so, but it's this constant idea of like, oh, you know, if, like you said in the pledge, you know, I, you know, I, I can't do this because I made a pledge to my future spouse, you know, that, that, that imaginary figure is now, um, but at least for me, to speak personally, it has affected like relationships for me, or at least like my engagement with other women, because uh, it's hard to untangle the real people in the world from that, like kind of ego ideal that I lived with for so many years of like this constant fear of if I'm not perfect, then this person is going to be horribly offended by me. Um, they're going to reject me. They're going to see me as damaged goods. They're going to see me as, you know, everything. And it has an effect on a lot of people. And that it's funny because it almost, uh, I feel like this is universal in, in like secular thought and dating is like the, the, the pressure of the man to live up to the woman's expectations and the pressure of the, uh, woman to be like the the ideal pedestal woman for the man like purity culture just creates that too like yeah. your imaginary future wife is this person that you have to be perfect for and your imaginary future husband is someone that better be perfect for you because you've been waiting for him your whole life yeah yeah that's so bizarre and just talking about it like that the way it's it's an idolatry of somebody who of course oh, may, yeah. or, may or may not exist like right, you know, right. We haven't even thought about that. Like who what person? Well, who are we talking about? We're talking about an imaginary abstract future family that we know nothing about. Yes, anyway. Yes. That, oh, it's so strange. It's just it, it's one of those things that I think we never questioned until now, because only now we're starting to see like the damage roll right, out. Exactly. And it it you know misses the opportunity to learn how to love people kind of where they are. Um not not that, you know not encouraging bad behaviors or whatever, right, right. but you, we all have to learn how to meet people where they are in their life and learn right. how to love them and grow alongside of them. Mm -hmm. um, and purity culture does not uh, right. <laughs> uh, allow for that at all. Cause you have to find someone else who's pure. Mm. Um, and, and, and it, <laughs> that just doesn't exist. <laughs> right. And, you know, speaking from a, a reform perspective, like that idea that like, well, I have to find somebody perfect and I'm going to be perfect. Like, well, you're setting yourself up for failure because oh, that doesn't exist. Not. It's, it's yeah. nowhere. And I think uh, Matt Chandler talked about, it was one of the first things I ever saw Matt Chandler talk about. Uh, he talked about a situation like that where mm -hmm. he yes. was in a college group and he had met a, a single mother who was um, in a, in a 
kind of sordid relationship at the time anyway. And, you know, he, his attitude was that he was like, well, this is where she is and I'm here. So I'm going to minister in this way. So, you know, after a while, they finally warm up to the point where it's like, well, why don't you come with us to church? And she does. And he mentions how the, the minister, his sermon that day was about sex. And his analogy was to have a rose mm. and hand it to the crowd and say, everybody pass it around. Everybody experience it. I want you to see how beautiful this thing is. And while they're doing that, he starts going into the fear mongering uh, part of, of purity yeah. culture, which is STDs and damaged goods and all of that yeah. stuff. If you have sex, uh, you're going to die. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. It's the Jack Chick method to, to yes. purity. <laughs> it was seen out of a hell house. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, he said the, the, the finish, the crescendo, the, the build to the sermon was he got his rose back and obviously it's been through everybody's hands. So it's been broken and petals are gone and it's missing pieces. And he holds it up and he says, now, who would want that? And, you know, his attitude was like, you've just killed anybody who's coming in here already, you know, thinking that they're that you, you've, yeah. you've given them no hope. You've given them no, no idea right. of redemption or, or restoration. You've just told them they're damaged forever and nobody wants them. Yeah, it's awful. And, and I've seen that clip as well. You shared it. And I, yeah. I think it is a very powerful moment because his response is that Jesus wants the rose. Right. That's the whole point of the gospel. Um, it, but I, I think it's important for us to to take a little bit of time. Well, I don't want to dictate your show, but, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, but to unpack that notion of these analogies, because this was a big part of purity culture was the rose analogy. That was actually, I think, the only one that I ever heard. Okay. was um that but they used it just in terms of like dating and getting your heart broken and like <laughs> you know uh, they had this it, they always um I have, uh, for those who don't know anybody watching it, I collect VHS tapes. I especially <laughs> like old Christian VHS tapes. And so I was going through and I was watching some old uh, uh, purity culture VHS tapes that I own. And one of the things that I noticed over and over again is they're always bringing up these poor little teenagers to be in their illustrations, to be like publicly embarrassed in front of all of their friends, um, which is just the worst shaming method. But it's highly effective for fear mongering. But, you know, they're always bringing up, you know, these these teenagers to go through these examples. And maybe you heard some than, more than I have, but there's one where it's like, everyone takes a bite out of a burger. Oh man. <laughs> uh, and you like take a bite out of a burger, pass it to your friend. And it's like, okay, do you, nobody wants to keep eating this burger because right. it's all covered in, in spit <laughs> and stuff. Um, the rose one is very popular. Um, other analogies are like a chewed gum or like tape that uh, there's one where they, they bring up like teenage boys usually and they put like masking tape on them and then they rip it off and, and the then they keep, up. It. yeah, they keep doing it and then it like loses its ability to stick. Um, there's another that I heard about where it's like you are, um, everyone is asked to spit into this cup oh of God. water. Um, or, I think what um, this proves is that youth groups are disgusting. <laughs> yes, youth groups should be abolished. We, we, we need, we just need to stop. <laughs> but um, the or there's another one too that was like pouring dirt into mm. into water, and then like, does anybody want to drink this? Mm. Um, and these are, of course, all just horrible analogies for right. sex and sexuality. Um, it reinforces this idea that for women, they are, you know, if you have sex before marriage or in almost anything, if you do anything sexual before marriage, um, (laughs) then you are like used and damaged goods. You have ruined this gift that you will never be able to give to anyone else. You are now dirty water. For men, if you look at the, the, the analogy, it's 
you are intrinsically dirt. <laughs> you know, like, like uh, the man of the analogy, like you are dirt, you are sick. You are this destructive force that selfishly devours other people intrinsically. And that right. is just, I, I think it was horribly damaging for um, so many people, uh, both, both men and women. Um, and it was especially damaging for people who are um, victims of sexual trauma as well in, in any respect, because one of the consequences of experiencing sexual trauma is that one ends up viewing oneself as damaged goods, as like something within uh, oneself has been intrinsically broken or damaged, which isn't true, but it is the kind of emotional gut right. reaction. And so then purity culture comes along and says, that's right, you are. <laughs> Um, and it's just absolutely horrible. Um, and it, I think just is the exact opposite of the, the gospel message, which is back to the analogy that you mentioned, which is that, you know, Jesus wants the rose. Um, uh, and I, I don't want to go on too long, too long pontificate. No, I have no. another example, but, uh, you know, I'll That's let you. Good too. And more. I think there's, you know, the, the, the reverse side of that is I think there is a lot of, um, potential for predatory uh male behavior if you know how to play the system right so mm. oh, absolutely. if absolutely. you know how to present yourself as that ideal man if you know how to be you know the yeah. the godly romantic and then you know maybe there is a girl who does think like oh this is you know we're, we've been dating for a while and he's been so sweet and romantic maybe it's not that big a deal if we do have sex before if i do do this for him and then he gets it and he's out because he, you don't know him really or you marry him because he did all these steps because that's what you're supposed to do to yeah. to get a yeah. wife and then you get married and you're two different people now because that was a facade that wasn't really right. who you were you know you're not interested in writing love poems every week or you're not interested in uh you know these big grand gestures or maybe you didn't really ever care about prayer or the bible but when you were dating you did because that's what you know a healthy couple does and now you, you the the object of your faith is your spouse and that's mm. a faith that can't yeah. stand. And that's a marriage that can't stand. Yeah. Uh, it leads to lots of, um, yeah, I, I've heard very horrible stories. It, it leads to lots of victim blaming as well. Um, I, I heard a, a very terrible story of someone saying that uh, th this is in a YouTube video on, on someone who, who who is an expert in dealing with trauma. Um, and she was relaying her story about how, um, her abuser was actually someone in the church and they used all of these tactics of purity culture mm. in order to shame her of saying like, well, it's your fault for not dressing modesty, modestly. You're, uh, you're the one, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, I can't help it the way that God made me with this overactive, mm. you know, sex thing. And, and right. you know, I'm, I'm a sex demon and it's up to you in order to dress modestly to not tempt me. And, you know, it's your fault. Mm. Um, and would use that type of manipulative, victim blaming behavior that's man modesty is a whole other thing that you know i i, I want to do an episode about one day but it's such a i don't know how to approach it from a uh yeah i i do think oh, sorry i didn't mean to interrupt no no I, I you know it's just one of those topics that i'm like i i don't know <laughs> like i honestly don't know it's yeah. almost like uh what's the, the quote about art or porn like i can't define it but you know what it is when you see it <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I suppose so. Um, and purity culture had a lot to say about modesty. Yes. Most of it, I think, was very harmful. Um, it taught women that their bodies are like intrinsically sinful. Um, and any uh, wrong, wrong actions of a man are their fault because right. they tempted them, even right, though they didn't right. try to and they didn't realize it. Um, uh, you know, it, th there's a phrase like that was used 
like stumbling blocks. You don't want yes, your body yes, to be yes. a stumbling and, and that was used a lot. And so, um, I really like to, I, I don't want to mean to interrupt you, but you know, no, go for it. When, when, when the apostle Paul talks about stumbling blocks, he's often talking about a thing that you are doing, uh, the, the Christian person, uh, you know, don't, don't, if, if your brother has a problem with their dietary laws, don't flaunt your ability to eat pork in front of him. So it's always like a, a, a responsibility on the person who maybe is being kind of libertine with their, their stuff. But here it's the other way around. It's like the, the vulnerable person is made to feel guilty. Like you're yeah, the stumbling yeah. block, not the other, right. the other way around. Yeah. It's total misuse of it. And there's also an interesting thing of like, uh, um, stumbling block is also applied to Christ himself, yes. you know, <laughs> like he's a stumbling block to the, to the Jews and the Greeks. Um, and, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his work, Act and Being, develops a whole theology of Christ as a stumbling block. Mm. And, um, and it's a very positive theology. So I don't know, ladies, if, ladies, if someone ever calls you a stumbling block, take it as a compliment and be like, oh, I'm glad I'm being Christ-like. Thank you. So, um, you know, because the phrase was modest is hottest, right? That was the yeah, that was yeah, the catchy yeah. slogan. Which but, again is a fascinating thing because it, it conveys a sense of you still need to be attractive. Yes. It's just right. you need to do it under the rubric of modesty. <laughs> that man, it's that's that's a good angle that I had never considered before. It's like sneaky, uh mm-hmm. subtle uh seduction. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna seduce you with my purity, not with my my outward yeah, display. Yeah, yeah, and it reinforces the notion that like you know a woman's greatest value is just to be the spectacle of beauty. Yes. Um, and so it still objectifies them. It's just right. doing it's it in a, different, in a way. different way. Yeah. Which I mean, that's the problem with uh, you know, trying to overcorrect for whatever. Pro- you know, if you know, purity culture, I think, is an overcorrection to free love culture. From the, you know, we're still on that hangover. The people yeah, who were yeah. writing the books for us when we were teenagers were people that were saved in the 70s and 80s that were coming off of that exactly. free love stuff. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're going completely the opposite way. And now, you know, everybody in the wake is trying to like, okay, where did we go wrong? <laughs> what are we supposed right. to be doing? Yeah. It's it's really hard to – I have a son. He's only two. Uh, he's going to be three. So right now I'm not – you know, it's not a problem. But I know at some point he's going to be a teenager and he's going to be interested mm-hmm. in girls. and He's going to be a, an adult who, who marries or whatever. Like how do I – navigate this for him and you know it comes back to that idea of like what is a biblical sexual ethic and you know there's first and second corinthians talks a ton about sexual uh purity and not even purity but just conduct in that sense that that phrase pornania you know sexual immorality comes up a lot and there's even that verse in second corinthians where it says there's sexual immorality that the world has never even heard of and it talks about how somebody's sleeping with their father's wife and it's just that that rampant uh, uncontrolled sexuality in, in the Corinthian church. So there is like a, a, a standard. Um, the problem is I just think we, we don't have it. We've we've made up our own for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's difficult. And I think part of it is just, you know, like I, like I mentioned before about a lot of the changing material socioeconomic conditions, not that I'm not espousing relativism. I'm right. actually not a relativist when it comes to morality. That's not my, that's not my view, but I, I, it, it does make things difficult because it's like, how do we take these moral principles and apply them to our own um, current circumstance whenever, you know, the circumstances have changed a lot and you're right. encountering like new, new societies, new cultures, new everything that, you know, we can't go back to like the, how marriage operated in biblical times, even if we wanted to, (laughs) uh, you know, you're not going to be able to start doing arranged marriages again. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, 
yeah, well, that's, so I, I, yeah, that is the, the one of the difficulties of it. Right. And that's kind of the fear, right? Like the 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 secular backlash is like the handmaid's tale idea that like, oh, if we have these biblical ideas that are outdated, we're gonna have, you know, female sex slaves and it's just gonna be uh chaos and like that's also incorrect. And that's the 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 difficulty in trying to like, you know, one of the hard hard things is understanding that like you said, the cultural difference, like if we're going to take the scripture seriously, we have to understand that there is a book in the scripture. There's an epistle in the new Testament written to a slave owner, like Philemon yeah. owned slaves. Like we, we just have to deal with that fact. And we have to deal with the fact that uh, Paul did not rebuke him for owning a slave. And, and contrary to that, he sent his slave back to him so they can be reconciled. Like, you know, culturally now we kind of like wince, but it's like, well, that's the text. Like, what do you want to do with it? You can't just throw it out. So we have to, how do we unpack this? What does it mean? How do we understand it? What did Roman slavery yeah. look like? What was their situation? Yeah. But it, it gets messier when we talk, you know, now sexuality, no one's debating slavery right. now, but sexuality right, is right. Like, you know, is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it is such a, a difficult question. Part of it, I think, is just acknowledging how difficult it is, approaching it with humility, kind of like what you're, what you're saying. Um, I, I would suppose whenever I think about like teaching young people, um, mm. I, I think one of the failures is also, I think, just a failure of the church in general and how we teach people um, because we we approach them. This is I'm getting this from the philosopher James K.A. Smith. If anybody wants, he's actually a, he teaches at Calvin College. No, oh, nice. He's reformed. You might like him. All right, um, here we go. My guy. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Uh, he's he's great though. Um, and his whole thing that he's pointing out is that churches approach people as primarily thinking things, mm. and they don't uh, interact with people at the level of like desire, imagination, perception, character, virtues, habits, um, and how those things get instilled into us. It's mm. primarily just like give them some information, tell them what to do, and then expect them to do it. Um, and I don't think that like young people, I mean, to a certain extent, yes, but they don't simply need to think better right. about sex. They also need to cultivate the desires and habits yes. towards a healthy um, sexual imagination and a healthy sexual um, uh, expression and like a healthy sexuality. Um, and they need to be led in the type of practices and, as James K. Smith says, liturgical actions um, that help fo foster that character building and help foster those habits in accordance with that end that I talked about earlier about being, you know, united in a type of sacred form of love and friendship and, and everything. That's um, funny because I, I heard two different uh, things today, kind of in that vein, about totally yeah. different topics. Uh, one of them was about apologetics, actually. This uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Cy Ten Bruggenkate. He's a, a Canadian apologist. Uh, he was talking about how the turning point for apologetics for him was when he realized that uh, nobody's a machine who just analyzes facts. You analyze your yeah. facts in terms of how you feel about them. Of course, so yeah. So that, that was like a switch for him. Like, oh, the problem's yeah. not the facts that I'm giving you. The problem's how you feel about the facts that I'm giving you. Right. Yes. And uh, another one is um, Professor Bruce Gore, who if if anyone's interested in like church history, he's got a whole series that he did on YouTube. Uh, I was watching his Revelation one. It's really good. Hmm. But one of the things he talks about is uh, that idea that like, OK, how you feel uh, can be determined by what you do. So, for instance, doing the thing cultivates the feeling more than feeling motivates you to do the thing. Right. Like, um, especially it's talking from a creative standpoint for me personally, it's like, 
I don't feel like painting today. Uh, okay, well, if I wait till I feel like painting to paint, I'm never going to paint anything. So I got to start doing the thing and I'll get the rhythm yeah, and I'll get yeah. the flow and I'll get the feeling. Yeah. And I think that's the importance of, and this is what James K. Smith's argument is, is that's the importance of like liturgy within the church. Right. And by that, he means like in general, that liturgy means like the work of the people, what you're doing right. in, in, in a church service. And that's, it's important to have like a robust sense of these Christian practices because mm -hmm. A lot of times you have to be doing things before right. you start. It starts really becoming a habit and second nature for you. You know, you have to learn how to, you know, love your neighbor as yourself by doing, right. you know, loving things towards them. And we often don't want to, but it's something that you kind of <laughs> have to, you have to pick up. You know, speaking of liturgy, just because of the, the season we're in, I'm, I'm curious your opinion uh, mm. about things like Lent. I feel like Protestants have a, a an unnecessarily negative attitude towards Lent, uh, especially I saw one person uh who's semi-popular on on social media talking about how oh it's a catholic idea it's extra biblical it's extra biblical so we shouldn't have anything to do with like yeah so is advent but we still do that yeah, and nobody yeah, has a problem yeah. with that um uh, what's like the methodist attitude on lent do you guys methodists love lent okay. <laughs> um, that, that is like one of the weird things that like not, not weird uh so like methodist methodism is born out of like the so like charles wesley is the OG, or sorry john wesley is the og right. methodist and he was originally part of the church of england right. um which the church of england that's like the anglicans and the right. episcopal church and all that kind of stuff uh very liturgical very right. influenced by you know the the lectionary calendar and these different seasons and lent and everything so john wesley was super into that kind of stuff um and it was he ended up more as like an evangelist and stuff but but that is one of the things that we've held on to in our tradition is, is a love of the, uh, of Lent. Um, right. they just, they just love it. <laughs> <laughs> we were, you know, one of the families in our church was talking about how they're trying to incorporate kind of a Lent, uh, practice, yeah. not necessarily the whole thing. Cause you know, I, I grew in South Texas, it's a very Catholic area. So you have, that, Ooh, yeah. you know, on Ash Wednesday, everybody has it. You just see them walking yeah, around with the yeah. crosses. It's kind of one of those weird things. And now being older and kind of looking into, you know, what is this and, and why do you do this and talking to Catholic people and like, okay, why do you, do this? What are you fasting from? Do you understand the concept? And I feel like for a lot of them, it is cultural where it's like, well, this is just what you do. But I mean, that's true of any congregation or denomination. There's yeah, a lot yeah. of people. That <laughs> so I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, part of that is that we have lost an idea of like a liturgical uh, duty, mm -hmm. like a thing that we do to, to stir up affection, which, right. and, you know, kind of speaking on marriage, like uh, we've, we've thought of marriage in kind of the romantic sense. And I, 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 love the romantics but they kind of ruined everything <laughs> it's all feeling and emotion and you know stirred up by everything and you know you probably you know a lot about the romantic movement i would assume and the philosophy behind it but it was kind of a a, a, a backlash against naturalism right like naturalism said or you know the enlightenment said there is no god we can explain all of this rationally all of these feelings and what they, they don't actually mean anything it's all science we can explain that the romantics just could not deal with that. They were like, no, this has to mean something. And if there's nothing beyond the thing, then the thing itself must be the thing. So that's where you have this, like, everything is romantic. It, you know, nature is romantic and death is romantic and life is romantic and relationships and everything. And you get people like Byron and Shelley who are just over the top and Keats and, and, and everybody like that. But uh, I think we adopted their ethos for relationships because I mean, that's the only thing we really call romantic anymore, right? Like, we don't talk about it sunsets is being romantic or it's all relationships. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, sorry. Go ahead. No, 
well, in in some sense, we think of our our marriages and our love lives like that. Like it's this deep burning desire, and you know, it's fun that that feeling, that new crush feeling, that new infatuation is great. Like you love it, but it fades. And when you when you've been married for a while and it fades, that's when you start to think like maybe I married the wrong person, maybe I don't know what I'm doing. And you know the the thankfully I think there's people like Vody Balcom and and John Piper who talk about like do the things that you do for somebody you love. Like love is an action. Decide every day to love somebody in your marriage. Like like you said, loving your enemies is the same attitude. Love them and you will love them. <laughs> Not wait till you feel like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I think you're making a good point that. Um... You see people, and again, this is we point this out in purity culture. You have all these people who are going to these crazy extremes, right. um, and sometimes there's like a kernel of truth within it. You know, like uh, the Enlightenment. Um, not to sound like I'm nitpicking here, they actually did believe in God, many of them, um, and the, the, uh, in in some circumstances they saw like, oh, we're just you know talking about you know pointing out the way that God has created the earth, and you know we we're doing that through science and reason and and, and everything, and um, there's some truth to that, you know, like, you know, a, a world that you can discover and, and know about that was created, you know, created by some, you know, there's, there's some truth to that. The romantics talking about like, you know, no, there, you know, it's beauty and, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Like I want to agree with that. You know, this stuff is really beautiful. Um, <laughs> uh, you, you know, life, life is full of, of beauty. Um, and I don't want to discourage that, but it's kind of like they end up going into, this is the only thing. And then right. like you see in romantic, uh, romantic relationships of like, um, you know, oh, it's just the foundation of it is, um, you know, these the strong feelings and, and, you know, these emotions that you feel for someone, it's kind of like, well, Emotions are definitely part of all human right. relationships, right. and but it's also not the only thing that's right. involved. And it's because you know, emotions are going to fluctuate a little bit. Um, it's also involved of you know how you treat each other and the habits that you've developed in relating to that person and and, and everything. So yeah, it, it's kind of like maybe the lesson for today is learn to develop some nuance in, in your life. <laughs> you, know, you know, if you find yourself in an all or nothing type of mentality, you probably made a mistake. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's, I, man, it's tied together, I guess. And it's, Cause I, I love that idea of ethics and, and aesthetics are tied together. Like we appreciate yeah. them in the same way um, because emotion and rationality apart from each other are faulty, right? Like they have right, to be together. Right. Cause I think, uh, you know, as a reformed person, that's one of the things that I worry about is that we have kind of a, a, a void of emotion, right? It becomes this head thing, like this deep mm -hmm. head knowledge. And I've talked to other reformed people about it and, you know, we've lamented it because like if, if you read the reformers, if you read Luther, you read Calvin, they were very emotional and talk about passions and feeling. And even the mm -hmm. uh, the Puritans who are like the, the American joke of like the stodgy all black Puritans. You know, they talk about godly affections. Like it's a thing we yeah, feel. Yeah. And even in, in the scriptures, they talk about that stirred up with love for each other and love for God and love for everything. Yeah. Um, yeah and purity culture has kind of damaged that aspect of it. The the romanticism that is important. Um, it's not the focus, but it, it, it does matter. It's like it's treated as a dirty feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree. Yeah. There, there's definitely. um yeah, being able to to kind of recognize uh, you know recognize how these things are interrelated, yes. um, and be and and strengthened by one another. Mm. And yeah, I think that's a great point. Do you think 
this is getting off topic a little bit, but do you think the, the attitude of like, um, not being able to, to appreciate that emotionalism is also why we can't as a, as a Christian community appreciate artistic endeavors anymore or make them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, um, you know, what's the point of making a painting? Just listen to the sermon, you know, right. uh, <laughs> right. that, that type of attitude. Yeah. I, I think that is, um, definitely a problem. People we, don't uh, really appreciate or understand the unique ways that art is capable of communicating theology. Mm, that's interesting. So I, I was thinking about this myself this week, uh, thinking about music because music mm. is big, you know, for me, I'm, I'm a fan of a lot of bands and I really dig yeah, into yeah. stuff. And just thinking about how I, I don't want to say like there was there was a very cheesy tendency in the '90s and 2000s to take any movie or song or whatever and put a Christian spin on it. Like, what gospel lesson can we learn from the Matrix? Like, well, I love it. I realistically, love it. nothing. <laughs> but I, I kind of get where you're going with it. But uh, kind of just thinking about how how music in general, you know, my favorite band, My Chemical Romance, wrote a ton of songs that have no. Yeah. No religious meaning or background or anything to them. But when I listen to them, it stirs up those thoughts in my head because that's the angle I'm coming from, right? So uh, when I hear, yeah, yeah, when I hear something like "I'm not afraid to keep on living," "I'm not afraid to walk this world alone," like my thought is not the same as somebody who's maybe coming from an atheistic perspective or a Buddhist perspective. Like I have this um, Christian worldview that I'm looking through that mm-hmm. that kind of stirs up a different attitude. Um, and I think I'm, – I'm trying not to get lost on this tangent, but I think that it's a shame that atheistic people, non-Christian people, whatever you want to call it, can write songs about deep emotional truths and we cannot or we yeah. just don't. Yeah, I think it's it's really, really a, a weird um, – yeah, it's so weird. You, you see that trend all the time like uh, um, – that. Uh, that you you look at the work that certain non-christians are doing i don't mean to you know get too mad that they're non-christian but like you know, it's this great it's this great work and then it's like you know you you look at what christians christians are doing the same time period and it's like oh no <laughs> um like some of the great like uh i think i'm probably not pronouncing this right but it's called uh i think aleatoricism which is like the incorporation of chance into your music uh, you know, like John Cage and things like that. And, and people, some like were doing it from a, at least a non-theistic perspective. Um, so, so I don't know if they were still religious in other respects, right, right. you know, Buddhism or something, but uh, incorporate, you know, the, the, the world being, you know, chaos and trying to bring attention to, to the, the notion of chance within music and the, the notion of the environment around you that you're creating the music you know, influencing the song itself. And I'm always, uh, my biggest regret is that no Christian during that time was like, oh, okay. So I'm going to go like perform out in nature creation and say like, oh yeah, God's creation is also part of my song now. Right. Um, you know, it, it, like the, the chance of like mm-hmm. incorporating, you know, the, the beauty of the world that God has created into your song. I was so mad that no Christian did that. <laughs> Um, well, actually, yeah. well, there's a soundtrack that sounds like the, I don't know if you've ever seen the Martin Scorsese movie Silence, but the soundtrack to that. Oh, I you know what? No, that. I've been meaning to watch that and I haven't. It's good. That's, that's a really interesting movie. I saw like, uh, I forget the guy's name, but a, a Christian guy that does kind of uh, culture analysis talking about that movie. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. I really want to watch it. It's a really good movie. 
Yeah. There's a, that kind of reminds me, again, a little off topic, but I, I heard a story about uh, my favorite song, Heroes by David Bowie. Mm-hmm. You know, at the kind of towards the end where he just has the kind of that guttural scream and it just sounds kind of off, but it works when he, he's singing at the end of the song, we could be heroes. And it just sounds kind of okay. Like, yeah. So he had a, a series of microphones set up uh, certain distances apart <laughs> and each one would only trigger when the sound was loud enough to hit them. Ooh. So he was kind of doing that chaotic, like, if yeah, I can hit it, yeah. it'll catch. If I can't hit it, it won't. And we'll see what comes out at the end. And I just thought, man, that's really interesting. And like you're saying, Christian art is really sterile and like yeah, clean. Yeah, doesn't experiment at all. Doesn't no. try to, you know. Man, and, uh, you know, our relationships are kind of like that too, kind of sterile. And yeah. uh, I, I don't know, that we're very unromantic, if that's okay to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think romanticism is needed. Um uh, I, I think it's, you know, it's important to, yeah, to involve the emotions, to pay attention to your partner's emotional needs and, and things like that. Uh, you know, all of those, yeah, all, all of those things are vitally important. And purity culture especially neglected that because it just so focused on sex. It didn't, right, right. It, it yes. never taught you how to, you know, like as, as a man or, you know, it never taught me how to be sensitive to the emotional needs of a woman. Um right. You know, it was something that I had to learn from you know the other other people. Thankfully, my mom was you know helpful at you know educating me and, and, and making up for that lack of education because my mom is is you know really good at uh, things like that. Um, but yeah, it, it just portrays people as like sex machines and, and right. completely neglecting um, you know these other aspects of relationships that are really important to know. Um, and I, I do think it's interesting also, even in like how they taught about sex, uh, for the most part, people that that grew up in purity culture, especially if you were like myself raised in a private school, you basically received no sex education right? beyond don't do it. Right. right. Um, and beyond like uh, men make sperm, women make eggs, put it together and you get a baby. Right. Um, if that. And yeah. Yeah. And, and that was like the only you know, education that we were given. And then it was just tons of information about how, like, you know, if you have premarital sex, you'll, you'll die and you'll, you know, <laughs> Jesus will stop loving you. Um, and, and so I do think like back to the, the topic they were talking about earlier, uh, I do think people need to have a much more robust sexual education. Um, I, and, and churches need to be willing to, uh, to support that on just understanding all the different, um, uh, just scientific information about <laughs> sex. I, I, I think like that's really, really important because you get um, in some circumstances, there were people who were um, so deprived of sexual education that they'd get into a marriage and they wouldn't be able to even name like atomical uh, anatomical parts of the human body. And it's like, you need to be able to know that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, you, you know, it's, it's just vital for, for people to know. So I, I do think that that's, that's an important thing. Um well, it's it's kind of weird that uh, especially for for you know Christians who are so into the idea of like design and creation and intelligent design, like we're designed with genitalia. Like it's not incidental that we have them, but we treat it like that's you know this appendage that we wish we could get rid of, or you know this this yeah, function yeah. that we wish it. I, I feel like some Christians would be super cool if we could figure out how to uh, grow a baby in an incubation tube and never have to have physical contact of any kind, and just that's how we come out clean and sterile. Yeah. Yeah. Which 
it is unfortunate. And I think that part of, part of that too is within that type of shaming certain parts of our body. We like uh, can reinforce this notion of like, that's something about yourself that you should be humiliated about mm. or that you should be ashamed of. And I think it can generate a lot of like self shame or like self insecurity. Cause you know, you'll look at it, not you, but you know, people will look at, <laughs> sorry, people will look at certain parts of their body and be like ashamed of, of them or like view right. it as a threat. Um, there's a wonderful book by uh, Linda K Klein called pure, which is just her dismantling the legacy of, of purity culture and um, recording tons of testimonies by these women who grew up in it. Um, it's a great, great resource if anybody wants to look it up. Um, and she records these stories about these women who would have uh, anxiety attacks looking at their own bodies wow. in, in the mirror. Like I'm about to cry even just thinking, you know, thinking about that. But I've like personally had those own, ex those experiences of, as well of like, you know, being so shamed by my own body that, you know, from purity culture that I end up, you know, hating myself. And right. it, it's, I think the opposite attitude that God wants us to have to our bodies. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, we need to be able to uh, love and, and cherish ourselves and recognize that uh, I, I think people will be much more willing to express Christian love to other people if they think that they have something worthwhile giving to others, you know, and so, I think that people need to be taught that. That gets into, I want to bring this up because I saw it pop up and it's interesting. When you talk about, uh, something worthwhile to give to others. One of the things that I've talked about is that there's no good Christian love songs. Uh, and there is this one that I do remember because it was like a radio hit on Christian radio. Uh, it was called Waiting for You by this uh, Australian, I think she was, artist named Rebecca St. James. And that was the whole point of the song. I think the chorus was, I'm waiting for you, wait for me too. And that's what it's about. That's, you know, this, <laughs> is, this is the greatest love that I can give you is my purity. Mm, and it's like, oh. You know, there's no good Christian love songs. <laughs> yeah, that's that's terrible. And especially like coming back to it from like uh, um, on, on like the notion of trauma and, and people who have been abused like that, that just really reinforces this notion of like, I mean, they didn't even make that choice for themselves. You know, right. if one is if one is abused, then, you know, th that was something done to them. Um, and you know, that opportunity or, you know, what, and so it's almost like saying like, you know, you don't have anything good to give, right. which is what one of the core fears of many trauma victims is, is that like, Oh, there I'm damaged goods and I don't have right. anything to, you know, worthwhile to give to other people, which is not true. I mean, that, uh, you know, contradicts, you know, everything that we might say about God's grace and how God, you know, transforms us and works within us to be able to express godly love to other people. Right. Um, but it's like purity culture comes in and is like trying to affirm, you know, the, the false narratives of, of trauma in that respect. Right. And, you know, I've known people who have, have been through those kind of experiences and it is always that, you know, we've talked about like, Oh, well I'm, you know, I'm interested in this person, but I don't know how to tell them about my baggage. And it's like, well, yeah, there, there's, I think there's a trust and understanding that has to come with that, with that they will be understanding and delicate of what you're dealing with. And, and I, I don't think that's, Maybe that's why it doesn't get talked about in the church, uh, because there's a fear that there is no understanding or or gentleness to be dealt with. Yeah, unfortunately, the, the church has really neglected this, uh, which is such a shame because one of the biggest 
scandals happening in churches right now is around sexual abuse, not just right. in the Catholic church, it's right. in lots of denominations. Yep. Um, churches absolutely need to start having a more robust education and, and understanding of um, sexual abuse and sexual trauma and things like that. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, talking to other people about one's trauma, how to do that, when to do that. Um, there is, uh, I'll recommend to you to recommend things on your, uh, your show that I don't, you know, but, uh, there's a, I won't, don't, don't take this as Julian recommended. This, this is, this is a vacation Bible school. Uh, the YouTube the channel expressed by vacation Bible school do not necessarily reflect those of the time and place. Thank you. Yes. No, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's problematic. I just, you know, but, uh, there is no, a, a great YouTube channel called trauma talk, um, who, uh, and she, uh, is someone who's gone through these things. And she talks a lot about questions of um, how do you talk to your partner about your trauma? Um, how can you as a, a partner listen to that person's trauma and be there to support them and uh, and everything? And, and so it, it's a lot of great material. So I'd highly recommend checking that out. It's called Trauma Talk. Um, so, you know, that's another place that you can go to if, you, if, if one desires further education on that. And I, you know, I talked about this, uh, not this specifically, but with one of my pastors, we were talking about, um, we did a video a couple of months ago about discipleship and mm. I asked him about the, the, the tension between being a lead pastor and also being accountable. And mm. I, I think when we talk about these kind of, you know, sex scandals in the church, that's one of the problems is that nobody was accountable. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it especially happens in, you know, sadly, I think a lot in Protestant groups, uh, because we don't have a, a, uh. I'm blanking on the word now. Uh, we don't have a uh, broader system of like bishops and yes, checks and we don't balances. Have a structure and, and, where nobody yeah. above anybody. It's it's the lead pastor yeah. and he's the man. And you know, or, or, you know, yeah. that's a congregational. Which you know, being a Baptist, that's kind of the system I grew up in. But uh, you know, there was nobody above them. Uh, right, right. In the Catholic Church, it gets really, really kind of gross because the people that were above them were just kind of helping hide it. Yeah, yeah. That's that's one of the what makes it so worse is that like there's so many opportunities for right. it to be stopped and it, it was just failure almost every step of the way. And one of, I didn't plan on talking about this, but it, you know, it happened. So I mean, we might as well, sure. uh, Robbie Zacharias, uh, oh. yeah, who just passed away and all that stuff is kind of come out. Uh, Dr. James White was kind of giving his statement on it and he was talking about how there's a lot of anomalies, like the money that was going out. Like, why was nobody keeping track of this and asking what it was for? And the fact that Ravi would be gone out of country by himself. Like, why was nobody questioning that or asking what was going on? Or there were so many opportunities to where somebody should have been able to say, hey, what, yeah. what is this? And nobody did. And, you know, it, the, I, I, I don't like to, to speculate on what somebody's eternal state is because i don't know and i can't say for certain but there's you know uh, uh evidence that these kind of text messages and and emails and videos or whatever were being exchanged you know months before he died and yeah. the, the, there was no 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 evidence of any kind of repentance but rather him using his power and influence to cover it up and suppress it and yeah you know now we're all dealing with the wake of that like the ministry's dead like what are you going to do there's no there's no salvaging that yeah i i think that's one of the, the, the that story of course is, is just so sad and and horrific um and i i think that you're bringing up such a good point of like the lack of accountability within many of these places i mean in his ministry 
It's the Ravi Zacharias right. <laughs> mystery. You know, it, it's all him. He's the man. He's, right. you know, the, the, the leader of this, who is going to hold him accountable. Um, so I, I do think that we need to try to find ways to build accountability into mm. our churches in whatever way that, that we can. Um, right. Like, I think one of the problems, actually, I know I made a joke earlier about abolished youth groups, um, <laughs> but I do think one of the problems is that you, in youth groups, you have um, all of these very impressionable uh, uh, middle school to high schoolers put under the care of like one youth pastor that maybe has a Bible degree. Right. Uh, we used to joke it like I've joked with other people like, what are you going to do? Uh, I don't know. Maybe drop out of college and be a youth pastor. Um, <laughs> uh, but, um, but like, unfortunately that is, that type of mentality is very common. You have these very inexperienced people that are put in charge of a bunch of vulnerable, underaged right. um, kids with very little accountability. I mean, they're just like in charge of this service. Right. Uh, and I, I think that that's really problematic. Um, and, and I think that, you know, churches should start considering alternative models to, uh, to youth ministry, um, especially considering like how much uh, um, abuse happens within Youth right. ministry. I mean, just the, you know, I, my, my youth group was pretty good and we had pretty good oversight, but uh, my youth pastors were like in their twenties, they were young guys. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like that's yeah. the typical youth pastor is a young charismatic is. guy in charge of like young impressionable girls. <laughs> like you're setting yourself up, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. and, and, you know, boys as well. I, I, you know, have talked to someone before who was sexually abused by his youth pastor. Um, you know, it's just, it, it, and it messed him up for a long time. Uh, he's back living a, a great life now, um, you know, shows how amazing God's grace is and, um, and being able to help bring redemption to people. But uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, playing with fire. <laughs> right. And you know, that's one of the things too, that I think the, the, the Bible does talk so much about the problem of lust and the problem of sexual immorality and the problem of not controlling that or, or, or indulging in that. Um, and maybe we just don't take it seriously. Maybe sometimes we think we're above. I know personally, I found myself in situations where I thought, well, I can handle this. Obviously, I am above this kind of thing. And then you're in the midst of being like, I could not handle this. I thought I could. But, and that I don't think that we we have an elevated view of clergy to where we yeah. think like, well, they're, they're pious. They can handle, and they can't, they're, they're just like us. Right. Right. So uh, maybe to end on this, one of the thing, and then we'll, we'll get some plugs before we go. Uh, one of the things that I, I really bothered me about purity culture is this idea that I think purity is like a code word for holiness. Um, yeah. and, and it becomes kind of this self-willed holiness. Like if mm. you can control yourself and you can monitor this yeah. and you can do this, then you'll be pure. Um, that idea is just really, really irritating to me uh, on a lot of levels. I, I, I made the comment this week that holiness is a requirement and a consequence of salvation. Uh, the requirement for salvation is holiness, and that holiness comes from Christ and his life that he lived. Uh, the consequence of holiness is then put on us after salvation, that, that conforming of the Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of Christ. We become drawn to holiness. It's, it's, and maybe, you know, maybe we'll have different theological perspectives on this, but it's not this innate holiness that I possess, but it's this put on holiness from God that, that elevates mm -hmm. us to that position. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we lose that in the scriptures, especially when talking to people who have been through some kind of abuse in this, 
this uh, purity culture that makes maybe makes them feel less than or less whole than I would encourage to hold on to that perspective that the apostles give uh, when Paul says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. All things are new, right? Uh, in Revelation specifically, because we're in Revelation this week, so the thoughts fresh in my head, Jesus talking about, I am making all things new. Like whatever whatever trauma, whatever baggage you have, uh, it's all new. And that, you know, in Revelation, to get back to holiness, that idea when John sees the multitude dressed in white robes, their white robes are white because they were dipped in the blood of Christ, not because they were in the 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 self will or the the yeah. self motivated yeah. perfection of whatever whatever uh, culture or belief system they had. It, it it always comes back to that. So you know, encourage people. Your holiness is not found in yourself. Your holiness, as your identity, as all other aspects of your life, is found in Christ and His work and and, and His completeness and His wholeness. Hopefully that helps. I totally agree. Um, And I think that uh, like, like you're saying, many people were like that, that notion of holiness, it it creates a type of spiritual elitism. That's all up to you. And and like only the most pure, the ones that are loved the most by Jesus. Um, And I think that um, personally, like if, if I were to ask who's the most sexually pure, I'd say that the most sexually pure in Jesus's eyes is not, um, the virgin or the man who doesn't lust, but the one who is dealing with uh, trauma from sexual abuse. I think that those are the people who are most like pure and precious in in God's sight, uh, that those are the people who God is drawn to and wanting to redeem and transform and make all things new, like, like what you said. Awesome. So before we take off, um, I, I didn't ask you before, so I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, but <laughs> you have any products, any plugs, anything, any projects you're working on right now? Uh, I admittedly, I'm working on an album, um, uh, for, uh, for a friend's record label. Um, I think it's called junk maker sounds on Bandcamp, Uh, and I have been way too slow at getting that out because <laughs> I have, um, it, it, I'm in, I'm a grad student. And so I I've been in <laughs> school. This has just been a, a killer semester and, uh, have not been, uh, uh, had enough time to work on it, but, um, junk maker, sorry junk to maker. correct you. Okay. Junk, yeah, I yeah. thought about that. I was like, was it jump or junk? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, at least I hope so. Maybe I'm saying it completely wrong. <laughs> and who knows? We'll find it eventually. I'll, I'll, I can post the link in the, in the Facebook or whatever, but, um, yeah, so, uh, that'll come out sometime. <laughs> it, it'll be there sometime. What's the, uh, what's the, the subject you're working with or does it have a theme or is it more of just kind of a, a free form album? Um, I'm hoping that a theme will emerge. We're, we're gonna we're gonna see what emerges. There is, I think, so far a coherence in the sound. I just can't exactly mm-hmm. decipher what what that sound is. Okay, cool. We'll we'll be interested to hear that. I'm always kind of I'm always impressed by what you put out. Uh, the the Satanic Panic one still is like that that one you have of the stage play with the puppets and the stuff that's in there. That clip that's that's part of the visual album. It's like. It scares me, but I can't not watch it because it's so. Like, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just uh, to end on a musical note too. I don't know if you were in mourning this week because Daft Punk broke up, but I had to take a personal day. That, that yeah, very very unfortunate. Um, their uh, album "Random Access uh, mm. Memories" is just one of my favorites. Absolutely adore that album. Does that, very sad to see them go. That album has to predate Vaporwave, right? I don't think it does. Uh, when did it come out? Like 2014. I want to say it was, uh, you know, I can look it up right now because we're sitting in front of a computer. 
I, I felt like it was 2012, but I could be wrong. Let me let me. Okay, look. if it was 2012, then it came out like right around the same time. Let's see. Uh, 2013, it came out. Okay, yeah. Most people link the the creation of vaporwave to around 2012, 2013. Okay, so I wonder if that was Although just like it a- might actually go back all the way to MF Doom. He was the first to truly make like a, a sampled vaporwave type sound on one of his uh, one of his albums. So there's some wonder, debate on that. I wonder if that was just like a general creative thing that was floating in the air, or if maybe uh, there's a over between the two like influence because i used to think like oh this is a disco album is it a disco album or is it a vaporwave album because like now rogers is on it but it's also like at the time vaporwave and, and that kind of stuff was in the air so i don't know yeah it's it, it, it uh, i'm sure random access memory especially influenced the development of future funk which is considered a, a type of um vaporwave subgenre. so yeah I, I think that you know all of that is in the water at the same time so RIP to Daft Punk, watch Tron Legacy if you haven't, because it's a cool movie with a cool soundtrack. Uh, but uh, thanks for coming on with this man this week, especially with Solomon being out. I appreciate you filling in. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. It was a joy. I hope it was edifying to anybody. Uh, if if you guys have comments, please leave them in. Uh, you know, and and if you are struggling with anything, there is real resources to reach out to. Don't feel like, you know, if you feel like there's no answers, there is. So don't don't bring that despair on yourself and live in that because it's just destructive. There is newness of life to walk in. Absolutely. Um, Until next time, this is the time. This is the place. We'll see you next week, hopefully with Solomon. So peace. Bye everyone.